0: So today we conclude this series we've been doing on David and Jonathan, and uh, my hope is that you've learned a lot from their friendship, that it teaches so much more than how to be a good friend, that it teaches a lot of uh, practical stuff to our life. Um, If not for anyone else, I, I enjoyed getting to know Jonathan, right, because we all know David, but I don't know about you, at least in my case, I didn't really know who Jonathan was, so to be able to look and... See who he is. It was an exciting time. You know, the first first time that we met Jonathan in the series, we saw how he put his friendship over his own future and that he realized the moment he met David that David was the true king and he was not gonna ever fill that throne, even if his father passed, and and how it's such an example to us on sacrifice. And then the next time we got together, we looked at how Jonathan came in when David was trying to figure out if Saul was trying to kill him, and so Jonathan fired three arrows to decipher the message that David was trying to interpret, reminding us that we all need a Jonathan in our life to decipher the arrows that we are facing. Last week, we looked at how David processed the loss of Jonathan, and really an example to us on the grief process that we all face when losing someone that we love, and and today we're going to look at, now that Jonathan's passed away, he left behind a son named Mephibosheth. And uh, we're going to look at, at Mephibosheth's life and, and ultimately what I think God is wanted to share with our church today. Let me pray. God, thank you for who you are, your love, your grace, your mercy that you give upon us. Each and every day we're so unworthy of. And as we enter into this time of worship through your word, Lord, I pray that your spirit be real to each and every person here. God, that the heart that you placed in me for this message would be conveyed to each person here. Lord, that they would feel the impact of it as you've impacted my heart. So, God, today I ask that you let your anointing flow. Lord, help me step aside as you speak to every situation in this service today. And we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. You know, it's it's ironic. A few weeks ago uh, I was sitting with someone who was asking me, about sermon prepping and and how they do it and how I do it. And then they said, it just feels like every time I prepare a message, I tend to live it uh, the week before it. I was like, well, welcome to ministry. It's hard to get up and preach a message that you haven't lived through or walked through before in your life. Now, I wish that it would be one of those get-rich-quick messages and I could live that the week before I got up, but uh, it tends to be sometimes the most difficult things we live through in order to come and tell you. And so uh, today I'm going to share a story with you of something really difficult Amber and I went through um, and and how that kind of impacted what I want to talk about today uh, and and how God brought me through it. Uh, As I was thinking about how we live through what we're getting ready to speak about, I thought about, you know, Moses didn't just come to the Red Sea with a lot of faith. If you remember, God had done extraordinary things leading up to the Red Sea So that when he got to the Red Sea, he would trust that God was going to part the waters. Meaning that when we go through little things, God always shows himself faithful. And so when it comes to the time that we have a Red Sea moment, we've seen the faithfulness of God in the little things, and we know that he will part the sea in our lives. And I know that to be true, that the same God that parts the Red Sea is willing to do it again, even today, in the situations that we face and I feel like somebody here as I was going through this just needed to hear something a little different from what I'm going to share. I got this feeling in this morning as I was kind of finishing up my notes. That there was just going to be people here today, whether it was one person or however many God put in the seats today. That they're just tired and ready to give up. I lived it this week. I understand that that takes place. And as strong as I felt God telling me that there was somebody that was going to be here to, who was tired spiritually, physically, emotionally, as emphatically as I felt God say that, I also felt him in, my, in that same breath say, but don't give up. And so I don't know who it is, maybe every single person here, but I want to tell you, don't give up and don't stop fighting. As I started with, God tends to to bring me through the messages before I get a chance to do the message. You know, Amber and I have, um, I want to talk to you about fighting for your family. Um, That's what I feel like God really uh, wants to take this Mephibosheth story and really kind of teach us today. And so I want to share with you something that really only a few people, even in our own family, even knows. But you guys are family to us. Uh, you know, we have five beautiful kids at our house. Um, two of them are kids and, and three uh, kids that we're the caretakers for as long as God allows us to be. And most of you know I stood up here last Sunday. And Amber wasn't here because she was at the hospital with one of the smaller kids. And I said, hey, just pray. And some of you asked me, and I gave you details about it. Um, but what most of you didn't know was how serious it really was um, uh, and how difficult the next few days after Sunday would be. So Friday, a week ago, uh, I got a call at work that the, one of the little kids had fallen out of the swing of daycare. And so I go. It was at the end of the day. Anyhow, so I go, and I pick the kid up. And, and it was an accident. Not only it was just some bruising on the back of his head where he fell, and, and they showed me the video. It was To me, nothing major. He was fine. He could talk. He could walk. He could do everything that you would expect somebody to do uh, normally. And so uh, we woke up the next morning on a Saturday, and what was just like some minor swelling and bruising had become swelling all over the head. And so Amber and I knew immediately he needs to go to the pediatrician at least, and and from the pediatrician they put him into the, the hospital. And, uh, and and his face just continued to swell. We had no idea what was going on. I was at a ball game with with Zeke, and I had the other side four kids with me. And Amber's at the ER with with this kid. And um, little did we know, at that time, um, that the nurses that were there had, had called a child abuse report in on me and my wife, which was weird, right? And so. Uh, and we, and we learned the extent of it on Sunday night when the caseworker came to our house. And I got a call on Sunday, um, on Saturday, from the caseworker who said, we just got a report that he's covered in bruises. And I thought, well, I have no idea. I mean, I understand he has the one on the back of his head, and, but that's all I know of. And she said, okay, we're just trying to figure out what's going on. And, and so when the caseworker came to our house on Sunday afternoon, She said, yeah, there's uh, an investigation on you guys. And we're like, well, how? We have the video. Like, I have the video on my phone. I can show it to you. You She'd already saw it. She's like, no, we understand it. But the implication was that we had done something to the child. And it was a very, that was just a difficult allegation for us because, you know, we had, of the goodness of our hearts and what we felt called to do, had opened our home. And and so, um, so the next day, Amber goes to work. And she begins to face the reality that she may lose the job that she just started. And so my wife is emotional and she's, you know, not even within my grasp of my arms, you know. And so she's battling that and and I'm battling the investigator coming to our house and asking questions and looking around. It was just a very um, troubling time for our family. And so as we're going through this, we're wrestling with all these things that could take place, the what ifs. You know, what if Amber loses her job? And if the allegation is made, I said, what if I lose mine? Because we work for the same department, you know? I was like, they're, they're going to let both of us go. And they were like, well, what if they take our kids? And, and so we're going through all these terrible things. And so we begin to wrestle with the reality of, we don't think this is for us. Like, like we care for them, but this is, this is not for us. Because what we stand to lose is much greater than what we feel like we're going through. Uh, you know, I got a phone call Monday afternoon that we were no longer being investigated. Um, and but you know, it was still a troublesome time. And so there's this uh, there's this couple that comes to uh, the chapel every Wednesday. And when when it, when you talk about godly people, they might be two of the most godliest people I've ever met. So if there's ever prayer that I need, I always open up to them. And and so the husband was speaking, and his wife was just uh, he was speaking to the congregation, and I was sitting talking to his wife, and she was just asking me questions, and I said, hey, this is what we're going through, and and we're just wrestling with it. This is what we want to do any longer. And uh, if you come from a charismatic background, or Pentecostal background, somebody speaking prophecy doesn't intimidate you, and it doesn't me because I came from that uh, that background, and I still believe that God prophesies through people. Um, So anyhow, she says, hey, I just feel like i got to share this with you. And so she says to me, I feel like somebody has spoken evil over your family. And she's like, I feel like somebody wants you to fail. You know? And, and she says, uh, and the, enemies want, the enemy wants those kids out of your house because he wants those kids. And he can't have them if they're in your house. And then she says to me, the enemy wants you to be ineffective in everything that you're doing. He wants you to be ineffective. And, and, and it's... I'm locked into her, and she looks at me and she says, "Eric, you know, you have to fight for your family." And instantaneously, when she said that, my soul agreed with what she said. I knew that that that's what was taking place in our life. And so I, 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 well, actually, I saw Amber later that day, and 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 I and I shared all this with her. And the irony of of her saying that is that I spoke, with some, I spoke with some of you in our church, and I know some of you are facing family situations. And as, in, as, as strong as she said it to me, I felt like it was God saying, and that's what you have to say to the church on Sunday. And so instead of doing this typical Mephibosheth story, and I'll, I'll tell you his story in a little bit, I feel like what God wants our church to hear, what he wants you individually to hear, is that you have to fight for your family. And I imagine if I was to go around individually and ask you to be brutally honest, I know that there's so many of you that are battling family issues today that I don't even know. Matter of fact, you're probably battling some things that nobody knows but you. And you probably came to church today confused and scared of what the future of that situation is. But if you hear nothing else I say today, I want you to hear this. Fight for your family. If it's a fractured relationship, you should fight. If it's a fear of losing someone that you love, then you fight. If it's the uncertainty of a loved one's salvation, then you fight. If it's the emotion of ineffectively leading, then you fight. But whatever your circumstance is, you fight for your family. When she said that, it connected so much to the story of Jonathan and David for me. Before our conversation, I was going to do this, um, typical Mephibosheth story, and most of you are probably aware that Mephibosheth is this representation of us, right? We are broken people who do not deserve a seat at the king's table, but because of the mercy and the grace, but more importantly, the covenant that our king, Jesus, has with his heavenly father, we get an invitation to sit at the table, and it's so neat because the first week we talked about Jonathan being this type of Christ, right? And so the covenant for Mephibosheth to sit at the table was only forged because Jonathan was willing to put his future—I mean, his friendship—over his future. And today, every one of us as Christians sit at the table unworthy to sit there, but only sit there because of the covenant of King Jesus. And that's the typical message you hear about Mephibosheth, and it's a phenomenal illustration. It's a short story, 13 verses of chapter 9. But when she said that, and after conversations with some people in our church, I knew that that God wanted us to have a different direction, and so that's what we're going to do today. The legacy of Jonathan started the day that he met David, and the covenant between the two of them were forged. And countless times, Jonathan reinforced that covenant With him, As he would ask him, are are, are we still good with this covenant that we have established for the future? Let me read this to you in, in 1 Samuel 20, 42. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This was one of the last times that they would see each other. In chapter 23, they encounter each other again, but very briefly. This is kind of their last embrace before they have to go their separate ways because of the fear of David being murdered by, by Saul. And uh, when I see this story, and I've read it over the weeks that we've been doing this, it was, it was mind-boggling to me as, as to why Jonathan was so persistent in asking David about the covenant. It's almost like every time they saw each other, Jonathan wanted affirmation that the covenant still stood. And so I, I kind of began to ask the question, like, why would Jonathan, who has such a strong relationship with David, who looked at David the first time he saw him and knew he was going to be king, why would Jonathan continue to ask a man who had done nothing but proven himself faithful, If the covenant was still good. And it hit me. Jonathan didn't care about his own life. Jonathan cared what the future for his family was going to be. And so Jonathan, if you can imagine, when he encountered David every time, he wasn't asking, David, I need to know that the covenant's good because I want protection when you're the king. He wanted David's assurance that when he took over the throne that his family was going to be taken care of. What Jonathan did right out the gate the moment he met David is to begin to fight for his family. And to me, the greatest legacy that Jonathan left behind was not this mighty war hero, not this example of what a great friendship looks like, and not even the example of what a good leader looks like. What his legend will be to me for the rest of my life after what I've read is that he was willing to fight for his family above anything else because he knew if everything ended with him selfishly, that his legacy would end in that moment because heroes die all the time and they're forgotten about and the stories we used to tell about them they no longer exist and the things that we used to uh, share with people, to encourage them about them, it fades away. But if you can have a strong line from you, it lasts forever. And Jonathan knew, if David will forge a covenant with me now and he'll protect my family, he and I will um, will have mighty things together. And so this is what he is defined as. See, whatever happened to him, he was willing to accept it, but he could not accept uh, a promised future for his family. When the news began to travel of Jonathan's death, the caretaker, the nurse that was watching over young Mephibosheth who was five years old, immediately fled the residence because she knew that after the Philistines had conquered Jonathan, they would be on the hunt for Jonathan's son. And so the first reaction is, I'm going to grab him and I'm going to take off running. But in her haste, she actually drops him on his head. And it cripples him where he can't walk. He has to now be carried everywhere. And it's amazing to think how things can turn in just an instance. This prince's son who had the world promised to him was now dependent to be carried everywhere he went. A man who that one day they believed would carry the nation was now being carried by a nurse. It's amazing how things change. Not only did the death of Jonathan put fear in the nurse, but it also brought a real reality about. Whenever the king dies, his wealth is transferred to the next king. So not only did the one known for carrying the nation in the future now have to be carried, but he went from royalty to poverty. Like the song said, he had everything, and now he had nothing. Everything changed in the moment that Jonathan lost his life, and it's honestly a sad situation. But when David took over the throne, the first thing he did is he sought vengeance on every nation who had ever did something evil against uh, Israel. And if you'll read from 2 Samuel 2 all the way up to chapter 9, you'll read all these conquests that David went on, and they were taking out thousands upon thousands of men. And a matter of fact, at the end of one of those chapters, it says everywhere that David went, God blessed him. With victory is what he was blessed with. And so when he's done with all the conquering and the revenge and the retaliation for how his people had been treated, he asks this question, is there anyone in Jonathan's house that's left that I can show kindness to? And we're going to pick up in verse number 6 and read through the rest of the chapter. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to his ho- all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson, grandson made have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And I really want you to get this last part right here. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame at both feet. Mephibosheth was treated like David's own son. And his grandfather's possessions were restored back to him. And it's an, it's, it's an amazing illustration of love that stems from Jonathan fighting for his family. As I read this story and what was faced with us this week, We had resonated, what resonated most to me as a man is, I have to fight for my family. That's what made Jonathan such a man to me. It wasn't that he went out and killed 20 men by himself. I mean, that's a cool story. But what made him a man was that he was willing to fight for his family. First thing I want to talk about today is, is, men, we have to lead the fight for our families. One of my biggest fears and the sadness as I look at the church in America today is that men are having their wives fight for them. Check this out. The typical U.S. congregation draws an adult crowd that's 61% female and 39% male. On any given Sunday, there are 13 million more adult women in churches than men. Um, This past Sunday, their estimate, almost 25% of married couples, Uh, The women had to go solo without their husband. Midweek activities draw 70 to 80% of female and the rest male. And over 70% of the boys who are being raised in a church will abandon it during their their teens and their 20s. And many of them boys will never return. This is the last one. More than 90% of American men believe in God. And five out of six call themselves Christians. But only one out of six attend church on a given Sunday. And the average man accepts the reality of Jesus Christ, but fails to see the value in going to church. Basically saying, I believe Jesus is king, but I'm not willing to lead the fight for his cause. And to read those is troubling to my soul. And as a man, it should be troubling to your soul. And as a woman, it should be troubling to your soul. And as a kid, it should be troubling to your soul. That the very establishment that God has set up for the design of a family is fractured Among Christian families. That the very structure that he had in place. Is no longer stable anymore. And it's why we see a a rapid decline in churches. All over America. And all over the world. Truthfully. It's because men. Have excused themselves. From leading their family. You know when I think about. The manliest man I know. It's always my dad that I bring up. Right? Because when you're growing up, your dad can do nothing wrong. My dad was the toughest. And I still believe that. My dad's smaller than me. You know, you just grow up with this perception. But the one thing that I regret as I look on with my look at my father is that he forced my mom to be our spiritual leader. Like I look at that and I go, I loved everything about my dad but I don't want that to be a part of me. Like there's great characteristics he has. That's one I don't want. And it's sad because I love my dad, but he forced my mom to be our spiritual leader. And I can remember every Sunday morning as kids, we would wake up and my mom would encourage us to go invite my dad to church that morning. And every morning, even though he always said no, we just always believed he was going to say yes. And so when he said no, it was devastating to us. And every Sunday, it would crush us. And then as I got older into my teen years, I would begin to try to negotiate with my mom about going to church. Well, dad doesn't go. Why do I have to go? And I look back at that and go, my dad was a major influence on my church attendance, whether he realized it or not. Thankfully, God had a faithful mother in my life who didn't let us miss church, you know. But had my dad led that way without a faithful wife beside him, there's no doubt I wouldn't have went to church because I didn't have a desire to go, and my dad's example showed me I didn't have to go. And so as I, as I look at that, um, it's just a reminder that as, as, as a man, I have to fight for my family because my kids need to see me in church. My kids need to see me leading the fight spiritually in our home. It is not the wife's responsibility for the spiritual development of a family. And I will say that again. It is not the wife's responsibility for the spiritual development of a family. It's the man's. From the structure that God put in place, he placed the man as the spiritual leader of the home, and the expectation is that they will stand accountable for the development of their family as a whole. And I've learned over the years uh, as I dropped the ball many times, that, that my family needs me to be that spiritual leader. My kids need me to have the confidence in God that when we're going through things, I know He's going to pull us through because they watch my faith. And my wife needs to know that when she comes to me in, in, in an emotional state, that not only will I hear her, but I will pray for her. She needs that. My family needs to know that I will fight for them. And I believe that my family knows that as Satan comes knocking at our door, he has to destroy me before he gets to our family. It's the attitude that hasn't always been there, but God has continued to establish. is that I'm willing to fight for my family because I know that that's what God has designed me to do. And as men, it's the design that God's placed in each one of us. is that if the enemy is going to come, he's going to have to get through me first. Look at what happened in the Garden of Eden. It, the enemy waited until the two had separated. And when they separated, he went to the woman because I believe he knew that Adam was going to be the strongest of the two when it came to giving in to temptation. And so he knew at that moment that he could go and, and prey on her and destroy the family. And so God established the structure at that very moment. If you remember in the, in the punishment of the garden, When God begins to lay out everything, he said that the wife will always be under the head of the husband, that he will always be the leader. And God reinforced it over and over again through many writers of the Bible to let us know that men, you're the ones that lead your home, and you're the one that's going to lead the fight for your family. Your covenant with God is not for you. Your covenant with God is for your family. Jonathan's covenant with David wasn't for him. It was for his future family. Your attendance in church is not necessarily for you, it's for your families. And many of you know, there's many days that we come to church, not because we want to be there, but because our kids need to see us there. They need to know that faithfulness is the design that God has for the Christian body. Your attendance is not necessary for you, it's for your family. I I can remember probably 10 years ago, I was really upset with something that had happened in church. And I remember instead of talking with the person that it had happened with, uh, and I would just tell you I was working at a church, and uh, I, there was some, a disagreement that had taken place, I got where I stopped coming to church. And, and I look at it now, and, and I've apologized to Amber many times over this, that I forced her to go to church and make up excuses for me not being there when I should have been the one leading our family and fighting for our family. And I look back at myself in anger and I realized that that was a cowardly thing for me to do. It's not my wife's responsibility to fight for me. It's my responsibility to fight for her. My wife fights enough battles of being the mother of our children. But the last thing she needs to fight is the spiritual battle for our family. And it was me that should have been leading the family. But instead I wallowed in my self-pity while my wife was bearing the burden she was not meant to carry. And so my plea to to every man here and those who aren't and men that are in the community is to fight for your family. And women, as as delicately as you can, you need to encourage your husband to, to take his role in leading your family. Because it isn't pride that's at stake. It's eternity that's at stake. And I couldn't bear the reality that my kids missed eternity because I refused to be the leader of my home. And that's the stakes that's at hand. You want to talk about one of the biggest gambles you'll ever make. If I know the outcome of me leading my family and fighting for them, means that they'll have eternal fellowship with our Creator. Or I could gamble it, skip church and see what happens. It's not a gamble that I want to take. And eternity is at stake for the men who don't leave their families. And so today, I challenge you to make a covenant with God and fulfill it, not for you, but for your family. So men, fight for your family. uh, But the fight for family is also the church's responsibility. When we read the story of Mephibosheth, we see a caring person who ran to him to spare him when she knew he was in danger. She didn't want him to die, so she knew if I can pick him up and escape with him, He will live. I look at that as this beautiful illustration of church. I don't know why, but I look at that as the role of church, that we see hurt and broken families all the time, and that we're the ones who run to the rescue to spare them from the things that they're preparing to face. The responsibility of families rests on the shoulders of churches. If marital issues arise, it is the church who surrounds the family in love, prayer, and support, and not in gossip and dissension. If parenting issues arise, it is the church who surrounds the family in love, prayer, and support, not gossip and judgment. If families cannot make it to church due to neglect or disinterest, it is the church who comes in to rescue, to transport, or provide intervention. It's the church who runs to the aid of Mephibosheth when Mephibosheth can't get to escape themselves. It's us who carries that burden. The church is to be like the servant of Jonathan. When we hear trouble, we run to the rescue to grab the need and to fight for that family. If you've ever experienced a family who's going through extreme brokenness, it's very hard for them to even pick their head up. Better yet, fight. And it's the beautiful thing of what this body is. This isn't a body who comes together to hear somebody speak because that's their desire. And it's not a body who comes together because we're forced to do it. We're a body who comes together because we know that together we're stronger than if we're torn apart. And so we unify together in support of those people who can't fight for themselves, who can't even lift their head up because they're so broken about what they're facing. And so today at, at this church, it's my desire that we unify in support of families. Some of the greatest men face their mightiest struggles through family disunity, right, that The enemy would move in, cause the family to be fractured, and he would come in and conquer. And what an army couldn't do, the breaking of a family could do in just a matter of moments. And so for us, the support that's needed is through prayer and through unification as a church. Our church family is important because the enemy knows that if a family can be fractured, the people become easy prey. The story of Jonathan's son Mephibosheth has such a wonderful ending as Jonathan's legacy lives on. I told you to listen to that last part and I love it. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. A broken man who deserved nothing. His grandfather had tried to kill David countless times. If anything... David should have done what every other king does and come in and wipe out any residue of an old family to ensure that they don't try to rise up for the throne one day. But I love the ending of it. Mephibosheth ate at the king's table always. And it was all because Jonathan was willing to fight for his family before he even knew who they were. Every one of us has aspirations of our our kids, our loved ones, joining in chorus with us in heaven one day. But it doesn't happen through desire. It happens through a fight. The Super Bowl's tonight. And it's the biggest game in America. And I can promise you one thing. If one of the two teams decided they were going to go out there and win the game through desire... And the other team said, we're going to go out there and win the game through a fight. 100 times out of 100 times, the team that is willing to fight will be the team that wins. Whatever situation you face, whatever struggles going on in your family, desire is great. Fight is what wins. Fight for your family. That's why we fight as a church And that's why our church stands in the gaps for families who can't fight. It's because we have a covenant with God that we'll fight for them. And man, it's why we fight for our families, because when trouble comes, we want them at the table and not alone. Jonathan would be so happy if he could have looked down and saw that Mephibosheth, though broken, facing a future that was uncertain, sitting at the king's table because the moment he met David, he started fighting for his family. Fight for your family. And watch God do amazing things on the other side of the Red Sea. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. God, that you put the fight inside of us. God, that you forged a covenant with us though we were broken and unworthy. Your love pushed us through. And so today, God, I pray for each and every person here. Whatever may plague their family today, more than anything, I pray, God, that you give them the fight. That each man here would feel such an urgent call to fighting for their family. God, that each woman here would feel such an urgency to fight for her family. That each child here will feel such an urgency to fight for their family. Lord, that you would place this unquenchable fight inside of us, that when the enemy tries to tear us apart so he can prey on our and disrupt our families, that you would cause us to fight in the face of that. That if someone's here and they're they're facing marital problems, Lord, we stand unified as a church in support and prayer for them. If someone's here and they're broken because they know a family member faces the reality of eternal separation, if something doesn't change, we as a church stand unified and we fight with them. God, if there's someone who's come here and they're just tired and ready to give up because they know that they can't go any longer, we stand unified and we fight with them. But the attitude of our church and our church members from this moment on is to fight and never surrender. So today, God, we commit our families in your hands. We commit our church in your hands. God, we commit our future in your perfect plan. And we ask you to help lead us and guide us as you take us across the Red Sea to other obstacles to continue to grow us in our journey. We love you, we praise you, and we give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So next week we'll start a new series on the problem with I, where we look at what pride causes out of us, which is insecurity and, and debtness and all these I words that come out of that. And so we'll we'll spend a few weeks on that. And it'll be a good time. Uh, if you would stand with me, we'll we'll go ahead and dismiss.